Welcome to Coffee and Change, a podcast where we talk about change in our lives, our work, and our world, and how we're managing it. How many of you remember the phrase, run away with the circus? Or maybe when you were younger and you had a parent ask you, what are you going to do, run away with the circus? My next guest, James J. Guilford, did just that. And the circus he ran away with was Cirque du Soleil. There he led the design of corporate training and team building. Jay specializes in experiential learning, conflict resolution, and building the next generation of leaders. In our discussion, Jay shares his story of origin, his insights on navigating uncertainty, and lessons on life, which, let's face it, can be a circus of change. Enjoy the discussion. best way to describe me is that I worked with a bunch of clowns. That's what people really know me for. I was at Cirque du Soleil for uh, a little over six years. And for the first three years at Cirque, I managed our at-risk youth programs in the United States. And then for the last three, three and a half years, um, I helped uh, create and I led the creation of our corporate training programs. So uh, I have been working in leadership and corporate training for longer than I should say, over a decade. I'll just leave it at that. And the shiniest thing on my resume is Cirque. I, I've, I've, through Cirque, I worked with a lot of, of the bigger names like Google, Adobe, Microsoft, MasterCard, Kmart Australia, surprisingly, which is a six billion, or was at that time a $6 billion retail giant, Toyota Canada. Um, and, you know, in, in my work, I got to see how great companies and what great leaders did well. And as a leader who failed, I understood firsthand how when you fail as a leader, which I did for many years uh, prior to becoming a leadership strategist, when you fail, you do a lot of damage. So I bring to the table my personal experience as a reformed bully boss and a leader who has failed. I bring to it professional experience as um you know, as a person who's worked with some of those shinier names, and I bring to a lot of this work uh, just having been on the outside as a coach and being able to come in as a third party and say, hey, something's going wrong, you know, and, and what I like to tell companies about hiring consultants, and you know this, Bill, is that, you know, I get to come in with no skin in the game, and I can go in and tell the CEO, you know, you're acting out, and then I get to walk away. So I have that kind of triumvirate of, of perspectives that I bring to this leadership stuff. Yeah, and I can't wait to, to hear more. I think one of the most fascinating things in, in looking at your background, and I love how you say this, you got to run away with the circus. And, yeah. you know, as someone who remembers very, very vividly my first circus that I went to as a kid, and then, of course, if we think about the story of P.T. Barnum and everything like yeah. that, I think what's so interesting about the the phrase, run away with the circus, um, it reminds me of this aspect, you know, as you were talking about, which is you know, coming into a town, so to speak, mm-hmm. setting up um, and and then packing up and leaving. You know, mm-hmm. if things didn't yeah. go well, if things went well, regardless, yeah. pack up and leave yeah. and off you go to the next thing. And so yeah. using that kind of metaphor and analogy, I'd love to dig in here a little bit because I think very similarly in consulting and in leadership development and all the work that, you know, you do and I do that overlaps, 
I think sometimes it feels like we do that, right? We come in yes. with the circus. Mm-hmm. We say, look at all these wonderful acts of things we can do mm-hmm. and the oohs and the ahs. And yes. then it's time for us to pack up and go. So knowing that, I would love for you to talk a little bit about that experience as well as Cirque du Soleil, because I've been one of those people who's been in the audience at, at a number of Cirque shows and had my yeah. breath taken away. <laughs> it does um, that. <laughs> so, so to know that you got to work with those incredible human beings who their body is their craft and also do leadership development with them in this way of, you know, circuses used to pack up and leave and, and, yeah. and Cirque du Soleil kind of did that, but they also set up in places like Vegas where people come yeah. to them. So I'm throwing yeah. a lot in there, but that you can I tell got me. a lot to say. <laughs> Yeah, I got a lot to say. Well, first of all, I want to say we're all aware of the challenges that Cirque du Soleil is facing, which many entertainment companies are facing. Cirque's business is live entertainment, and since there's no live uh, gathering, there are some challenges. I hope the shows come back because I, I don't get paid any commission, and I will tell you this, Bill. I spent more money on Cirque shows while I was there and, and on those shows that I spent in live entertainment in my entire life. And I also got tons of free tickets. I just felt it necessary to purchase tickets when my friends came because I wanted to support the artistry because it was so. And I, I promise you, I've seen every show 10, 20 times. I've seen, oh, Did more you have times a favorite? than I can count. Uh, I didn't have a favorite. I didn't okay, it's a hard a question. I, <laughs> I, can, I can say, I can tell you this. When Cirque du Soleil does rise again, it, you should come to Vegas. Everyone should come to Vegas safely. Um, adhering to all of the guidelines and you should see Mystere because it's the most acrobatic show. Yeah. You should see O because the stage is a 1.5 million gallon pool that transforms from solid to liquid in less than 30 seconds. You got to go see Ka because the stage, I won't tell you what that stage does, but it's, it floats. I'll just say that. And it's the size of a 747. So those the the theaters in Cirque are custom built so that they never travel. Like Ka's 50 ton stage is not going to ever go anywhere. You have to come to Vegas. Right. O's 1.5 million gallon pool is not ever going anywhere. You can only see it in Vegas. Um, and when I was at Cirque, the way that I taught leaders about creativity and innovation and diversity is that I had to become very fluent in the shows. So I know more about the technical aspects of Cirque du Soleil shows than I probably should. I know what wig glue is, for example. I didn't even know that was a thing. Wig glue is a thing. So, um, so yeah, I would say Cirque, my experience at Cirque was amazing. Um, in terms of Cirque and corporate leadership, what was great about that kind of slapdashness that you talked about is that they allowed us to try lots of different things. Like the corporate training at Cirque du Soleil was just a whisper in the wind. And then I partnered with corporate, uh, corporate alliances and uh, Cirque Hospitality, which no longer exists, was a division. And we got together and we made some stuff happen. And um, they gave me an office. Uh, they gave me a budget. They gave me access to all of the artists. I got to work with all seven shows I mean, I got carte blanche where I could just come in and say, Uber's coming. And they would say, well, why don't we build um, a, a car, an Uber-shaped car, and bring it out to 2001 Space Odyssey? I was like, great. <laughs> so um, it was a really amazing experience. Whatever you think of when you hear Cirque du Soleil and corporate training and leadership, that's exactly what it was. 
that's exactly what it was. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I think it's, I think one of the things that you, you hit on, which I think it's like this seed of transformation is source of inspiration. Yes. Like you can take moments of inspiration and let them be the, the fire, if you will, in mm-hmm. a good way of transformation. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, you know, when you were there, was it hard not to take every moment of inspiration and be like, I've got this great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, because there, what, what was, what's interesting about um, any organization that's truly at the top of their game, they oftentimes don't, they don't see it. So at CERC, what was great for me is that I, as a consultant, I was working internally at CERC. And because I had the lens as a consultant, I was studying it in part pieces. So I could see that at Ka we could teach innovation, or I could see that at, um, by putting people on a trapeze, we could teach healthy risk-taking. So it was, I had to edit a lot, and we had to decide which of the three things, which of our, our core competencies of the 20 that they had, which of the three are we going to focus on? Um, the other thing that I think when you say source of inspiration where that comes from as a leader, and I, well, I want to say, describe what I did. So I worked, I had a core team in the office, and we plugged into the production teams at the show. So anytime I went to the show, I was like kind of spearheading a team of between 10 and 30 people, depending on the size of the group, and then artists and then technicians. So what was interesting about me leading those curricula is that I had to come in and trust that they knew more than me. Whenever I went to production meetings, I didn't know what the cost stage could do. I could either come in and suggest something and get something very narrow and okay, or I could come in and put an empty bowl in front of them and they filled it with ideas. So the source of inspiration really came from trusting that the pyrotechnicians and the automate the the, the lighting technicians and the automation technicians and the contortionists, I had to trust that they all knew more about what was possible than I did. Um, and it, you know, it's a, you have to let go of your ego to do that. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of editing in terms of all of the ideas. And the one thing that happened that helped us was that whenever we went into production meetings, I just gave them the bare bones outline and they filled it with all the shiny stuff. I didn't even know they had. Yeah. And it makes me, it makes me wonder also about, you know, um, being surrounded by folks like that, that you said, like, there's the pyrotechnics person, there's mm-hmm. obviously the gymnast, there's the contortionist, mm-hmm. you know, did, did you, did you ever feel like, Hey, did I walk into the wrong arena or, or how do I, how do I get some of these folks to maybe believe in me when, when I can't, maybe I'm fighting imposter syndrome and I can't necessarily do what they do. And I think we all fight this in some ways. Yeah. But yeah. I, I'd be curious, like, how did that come? Did that come up for you? Well, when I got to Cirque, and I'm going to say this because this is a way to overcome imposter syndrome. I am Ivy League educated, so I, so, and I, I say that not as a bragging point. I say that because part of overcoming imposter syndrome is looking at the shiny things you have to bring on the table. So, ten years ago, had I joined Cirque then, yeah, Bill, I would have been, you know, shaking in my boots. At that point in my career, I had, you know, gone from the inner city 
to the Ivy League and overcome a lot of that stuff with being like the poor, gay, black man, all of that stuff I had to overcome, you know, going from, you know, East Lake Meadows housing projects, living with my aunt for some years, uh, and then going to Emory University and then to Columbia University. So imposter syndrome, I had it a lot up until I would say my mid-20s. I'm a little older than mid-20s now. I had it a lot. And then um, at CERC, I understood that when you walked into those rooms, you had to understand what differentiated you from the others and what part you were bringing to the machine. It can be I had seen others come to CERC and, and I had seen in them and coached them out of feeling intimidated in those rooms um, because yes, you have Olympians there. I mean, I think there were 16 or 18 Olympians at O. Um, you had people, most people at Cirque had traveled all around the world and worked with Madonna and, you know, Bruce Springsteen. And so they had these names and these resumes. So it was important for me to understand that what I was bringing to the table was just as shiny, but in a different way. Um, so yeah, imposter syndrome, I have had it. Fortunately, I had overcome that mostly by the time I got to Cirque. Yeah, and I think it's interesting you you mentioned, you know, the aspects of the chapters in your life. Um, yeah. And I would love for you to, to kind of, you know, dig into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think I've been talking a lot with people during these, you know, these these days of the pandemic and, you know, in the stillness and in the silence, I think people are doing a lot of reflection and looking yeah. inward. And starting to kind of understand who am I uh, and where do I come from? And so, you know, your story of origin, you you, you talked a little bit about it, you know, coming from um, where you grew up and the things you went through. And I'm curious from your thoughts. I mean, I have my own my own um, kind of beliefs on this of the the imposter syndrome that I fought as well as a military officer who was serving under don't ask, don't tell and in the closet. Yeah. I'm out to my family. And so I know like when you say that, I can I can feel it. Yeah. But I'd be curious, you know, as, as you think about how you grew up and some of those things, um, those challenges and adversities you faced, and and now the work you do, um, helping people work through conflict, helping people become leaders. Do yeah. you do you pull on that? Do you pull on that thread a lot from from how you grew up and and what you went through? Yes. I want to, yes, I will. I want to talk about that. I want to go back first to this imposter syndrome part because I, I like to offer solutions. So if anyone's listening, I just want to give, I mean, I know someone's listening, Bill. So for the millions of people that are listening, I want to give one solution to that. I had imposter syndrome throughout and I'll say more about that. What I realized is that I don't need to mimic the other gears in the machine because I'm one of many gears in the machine. So that helped me overcome it by looking at what I had to offer that was very unique. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's I have an Ivy League education. It doesn't have to be something as obvious and as shiny. One thing I did learn from Cirque du Soleil, many things I learned is that, yes, a clown, a juggler is great at Cirque. If you're a juggler and you weigh 350 pounds, that's even better. Because you you look unlike any other juggler. Like there's a character on a mystery, he's big baby, and he's a big, big man, and he's a baby, and that's what makes him unique. So if you want the contortionist, you want the tallest contortionist or the shortest contortionist. So whatever makes you different makes you unique. That's your superpower. 
And imposter syndrome for me came from backing out of that difference because I thought it was wrong. Um, and now I've learned to lean a lot into it. So to talk a bit about the background, yes, I, um, my mother, my father worked really hard. My father was a janitor. My mother was a cook. I, I lived with them most of the time. Part of my high school career, I lived with my aunt in housing projects. And going, you know, going from Emory University, which was like top 25 at the time, and then going back to housing projects to live with my aunt, or at that time, my parents were divorced. And, you know, being in school with people who were paying cash tuition, and, you know, I'm working two jobs to, you know, eat and buy books, it was challenging. It, that was challenging. And then all of the things you, society tells you about who you are as a gay man, as a black man, as a poor person, I believed those stories. My path to rewriting those stories, somehow in my brain, I was able to kind of write an instruction book for myself. So now when I come into corporate organizations, I can see people who are telling stories that are not useful for them and that are not useful for the bottom line. So I can go back to that instruction instruction manual. Oh, you remember when you were in the housing projects and you had to go back to Emory University or, or when you were in New York and you know you were nearly homeless and you were working at the container store and then you had to go to Columbia. So I remember I have instructions from that and I'm able to share that. So I, very formative for me. I would not change anything. I mean, even now in the midst of uh, what we're experiencing with COVID, I had someone who'd known me for 15 years and they were in fret about it. And they were like, well, how do you feel? And I made a joke. I said, I'm built for this. This has been my whole life. I said, this is, I'm, yes, I, I've experienced lots of adversity, which helped me to understand how to act instead of react in this moment. So yeah, it, it, it was very formative. When I was in it, in the closet, in a fraternity at Emory University, no, I did not like it. It was very challenging. Now I have a lot of muscle memory that I rely on when I'm working with organizations and I rely on that same muscle memory in situations like these. Yeah, I, I love what you said about rewriting the story. And yeah. one of the things I really like about that, and it, it kind of brings me back to a couple of the Cirque shows I saw, right? This mm -hmm. aspect of everybody has an opportunity to rewrite mm -hmm. their story. And, yes. and I, I think, you know, you naming the the fact that there's a lot of narrative out there that tells us as individuals who we should mm -hmm. be, who we yeah. could be. Yep. And I'm curious your thoughts now, as we're going through what we're going through now, and you and I talked you know, recently about some of those pillars, and I put that in quotes, kind of coming down, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the, the sense of something has to be this way because it's been that yeah. way in the past. And I yeah. see a lot of those, those yeah. walls and pillars coming down. Now, I don't mm -hmm. think they'll be down forever. I think we'll rewrite the story. Mm -hmm. But when you think about that, and you said it, like you said it so beautifully, like you were built for this and you yeah. see kind of a regeneration happening, a, a bit of yeah. a Phoenix rising. What would yeah. you say to people who are <laughs> struggling with this? I mean, there's, as you mentioned, there's the entire hospitality industry, the entertainment industry, the live events industry, there's a lot of mm -hmm. people that are balancing a lot of uncertainty and yeah. struggling in this. So, so what, what advice maybe 
have you given or conversations you're having with people um, that ask you like, how, how can we rewrite the story? Like what, what, yeah. what does it take? I think for leaders, first, uh, there are a couple of things for leaders. We have to first of all acknowledge that the economic challenges are real and they can, they can feel life-threatening. So one thing I want to say is that I have the good, great fortune of, I, I have been sheltered from that experience in this recent part of my life. So I want to, I do understand that some of us sit from more of a pr- place of privilege than others. The economic uncertainty is real. If you're a leader, acknowledge that. Um, there's some, you know, I had, I was talk, speaking with someone and they said, well, these CEOs, da, da, da. And I was like, well, whether the CEO has, you know, a million dollar salary a year or one dollar salary, we don't know. There's still a person who's built their career and invested their dreams into a company. And they might might think that that's not going to happen anymore. And that that's real. So all of the angst can feel real. So that, first of all, acknowledging that. And once we have the information, pause and act instead of reacting. So we have the information, we have the information that we have. So let's pause and act instead of reacting. One thing, so that's the first thing I would say is take that sacred pause before you make any decisions. I would say if I had to rewrite the script of what happened now, I think that everyone responded well. I do, one thing that I talk to organizations about is before you send your workers home or immediately afterwards, give them a plan of how to be at home. And taking an hour or two hours to bring in professionals to say, well, what are some things we need to think about? You know, like, oh, let's think about that. Everyone's going to be at home now. Um, let's think about the fact that you're going to have to divide duties. Maybe you weren't there to walk the dog. Maybe you have to. The, the, so just giving some thought to the action instead of the reaction. And now, since we're in it now, the other thing I would say is listen to the, look at what stories you're consuming and look at what stories you're telling yourself. So there's a difference between being informed and being inundated with negative information. So what I do is I go and I go to the CDC's website, I go to WHO, I go to LinkedIn and get the updates. When I get the updates, I know, wear your mask, these things are closed, do this, don't do that. I would, I would ask people to look at the media diet they're consuming and really get on a stricter diet of information that helps you, that's necessary, and that feeds you so that you can move forward. Because it can be a trap to continue to watch the headlines over and over and over again. Um, so I would say take that sacred pause first. Even when you come back, so we sent people to work from home. It helps get someone to help you make a plan for when they come back. When things come back to normal, quote unquote, have a plan for that. And, um, you know, I would say look at your media diet right now and ask yourself, what don't I need to know? What tweet don't I need to continue to read over and send to my friends? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, as you were describing it, the, I, I do think there's a real, importance to and and there were a lot of people that frankly were caught off guard right there were a lot of yes. people that had to move really fast mm-hmm. you know i work with a lot of different industries yeah. um, and many people to your point had never even put a plan together on how this might look to work from home and so you yeah. have hundreds of thousands of people 
trying to figure out like how to get a second monitor from their workplace yeah, to their exactly. home and where do they set up and and I, I agree with you the the importance of like just giving people some grace around that and saying mm-hmm. look pause for a second and then yes. act take take mm-hmm. take a step it's not going to be the final step like we're going to have to yeah. learn from this we're going to have to iterate and it reminds me of a conversation I had mm-hmm. with a gentleman a number of weeks ago who works for um, Second City so Second mm-hmm. City a lot of people in Chicago probably know is the you know, the place where a lot of comedians and comics. Mm-hmm. Um, where everyone came. Yeah, all yeah everybody for Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, they all yeah. came from uh-huh. Second City. And uh-huh. this gentleman reached out to me and we had this great conversation. He works for uh, a division of Second City called Second City mm-hmm. Works. Yeah. And the whole mm-hmm. the whole model, which you're probably very familiar with. Is, I do know this. I yeah, yeah, stole some stuff from them. Yeah. <laughs> is using improv yeah. to help uh-huh. organizations mm-hmm. uh, basically train leaders and train teams better. And mm-hmm. He and I connected and, and we just had this fascinating conversation at the very beginning of this COVID-19 crisis. Mm-hmm. And, and it, was so, it was so inspirational because here was a person saying, hey, we do improv really well. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a point where your organization or the organizations you're supporting, frankly, need to do some improv and pivot, pause and act like yeah. take whatever's given to them and build upon it. And yeah. that's a completely different muscle. And yes. And I think it's going to be more important than ever going forward that people can, you know, take something and be able to pause and act, um, you know, yes. build upon, build upon a sentence that isn't quite finished. You know, yes. this, this crisis is far from over. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of leaders that I'm seeing that are born out of this crisis. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. thing to see young people basically step up and do what you're talking about, which is, all right, here's the information I have. I'm choosing to take a media diet. I'm choosing to take mm-hmm. a diet in other places. So I still have my, my fresh mental capacity. S- sanity, I would call it. Yeah, so I still, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah sanity, uh-huh. exactly. Uh-huh. Um, to, to participate, uh-huh. to offer a creative idea. And, and it is, it is, you know, I think about, I think about those moments. Those are small moments for people that can make a real difference. And, you know, it's kind of like I imagine, and I've I've done the trapeze thing once or twice in Club uh-huh. Med. I know you worked uh-huh. with Club Med in the past. Yeah, we as did well. some stuff. Yeah, uh-huh. um, you know, and so I did the trapeze training a little bit with some of them when I was in Turkey um, as a high school student. We actually took our senior trip, our senior trip to a Club Med in Turkey, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and it was an amazing time with the the geos and everything. But I I remember that like you have to act like you're flying through the air. And yes. yes, you, you, you can pause and be like, okay, what am I, but you can't pause too long. You can't pause gonna, too you're long. Gonna, yeah. You're going to miss the grip mm-hmm. and you're going to fall and you're not going to make the, you know, the, the completion yeah. of the, the yeah. performance. Yeah. So I think it's just such a fascinating time for young people and, and weaving in the importance of that pause and act, yeah. but also the power of improv. Um, and I'm excited that there are young people, consultants and others who are saying things like, I can't wait to possibly go to an improv class because yes. it'll make me a better leader, frankly. Yes. Yes. And I would add, I would add to that one thing that you're pointing out that I see now is then that pause is a set of muscles that we rarely build. And that's what we call soft skills. I would call them essential skills. What what happens in these moments is that what I've been talking to a number of people about is that, you know, all of that stuff we did in those workshops, all of that emotional intelligence, critical feedback, crisis communication, let's put it to work now. Um, 
so I think what I've seen that I think is great is a number of huge name brand organizations and CEOs stepping in to say, from a place of emotional intelligence, what's most important is people's safety, not my numbers on my spreadsheet. Uh, I think it, when we give more individuals and organizations and more teams and more frontline workers training to help them be more resilient and emotional, emotionally intelligent in the workplace, then we're better built for situations like this. Um, part of the part of the fear, as you know, is the addiction to fear that comes along with your amygdala being hijacked. When something happens that we think is terrible in our environment, our brain is hardwired to focus on it because we think it's danger and our brain won't let go of it because our brain confuses worrying with responding. So the reason why, if you're listening and you're, you feel yourself compelled to continue to watch the news, it's because your brain thinks that worrying about something is the same as responding to it or solving the problem. There's a coaching and training and strategies that we, you and I, do the same thing. You give in workshops, things that people can do so that you can override that hijack because it's biological. It's the thing that helped Homo sapiens you know, run from the tiger. It, you know, you create a trigger. When I see, when I hear a rustle in the bushes, it might be a tiger. So I always need to feel like it's dangerous and I always need to run. So you go into that fight, flight, freeze mode. And when you hear the conversations now, you can see that we're somehow still in it. Like when, when there are two phrases I hear a lot of people saying, and they're on their own, they're, they're innocuous. I mean, they're, they're just like neutral phrases. Like what I hear people saying is, you know, we just don't know what this is. I'm like, yes, that's, that's information we don't know. And another thing that people are saying is that everything's going to change. But people are not saying, oh, we don't have all the information. We just don't know. What people are saying is, we don't know. We just don't know what this thing is. We just don't know what this thing is. It's fear. It's, it, it's fear. It, the information is we know some things. We don't know some other things. Nothing about that has to be fearful. Um, right. or everything's going to change and everything's going to change. And it's like, no, first of all, everything's not going to change. Some things are. People are going to go to concerts in some form eventually. Like there's a whole tac tactile experience that people get from going places and traveling and seeing new things. The world is not going to suddenly go digital. I am not going to go on a vacation in the Bahamas over Zoom. I, I, you know, I want to go <laughs> to the beach. You know, Zoom cannot recreate the wetness of water so so it's it's this the, this these phrases alone and the way that we're saying them they come from this very fear-stricken place like everything's going to change everything's always been changing it's always been there was a newspaper now there's not the newspaper there was you know there was the horse and buggy and now there's the car you know so so everything's always been changing. It's just this happened rap rapidly and we had to take a quick pivot. Once we have the information, there's not, we don't necessarily have to um, prop it up with fear. Yeah, you know? I think it's it's so interesting the way, like I, I hadn't really noticed until you called it out. And now I think back to the, you know, the nine weeks that we've been at this in Seattle, I think about how, how many times people say things like, we just don't know. There's just, we just don't know. Mm -hmm. And and that it's really interesting when when people do that. It's almost like 
an exasperation. And yes. it's like they're, they're very tense mm-hmm. and they just need like a release. Yes. And yes. what's interesting is if, if you instead just offered them, and I agree with you as a leader to get up and say, Hey, we're all holding an enormous mm-hmm. amount of tension right now because mm-hmm. there's yes. information we know and there's information mm-hmm. we don't know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's a lot changing on the day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen this in workshops and I've done this in workshops where you say to people, mm-hmm. Hey, let's just get up for a second and maybe stand up mm-hmm. for a second and just, just shake, just dance and mm-hmm. shake. And people yeah. don't realize that you literally have to shake trauma from your body. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like that's what yeah. happens when people go into shock, um, mm-hmm. their body shakes and it quivers and it trembles. And I've, I've studied this and I've learned about it. And that's why to me, it makes sense why I love dancing so much. Right. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. You don't realize that you are literally moving tension and trauma out of your body. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think about, mm-hmm. I think about DJ Nice and the stories mm-hmm. that you know that amazing mm-hmm. story from the first couple of weeks where he yeah. went on Instagram and he would just play music and it became this, this very, you know, uh, it just built on itself and people yeah. loved it and I think it was because there was this collective exhale, this collective yes. release of trauma and and I think it's going to be important for leaders to to understand. Um, I don't want to say the obligation, but it's a little bit, it's mm-hmm. responsibility. I think as yes. a leader for you to get up and say, Hey, this is what this feels like. And I give, I give myself permission and I give you permission to exhale, to not, yeah. you know, we were talking before about what happens when people see an accident on the road, you know, there's mm-hmm. the, the rubbernecking as it's called. Yeah. And there's, there's always the, the frustration that people and regardless of all the authorities saying, drive on by, drive on by. Mm-hmm. What you're is wired it about to look. Us? Yeah, you're, you're wired. wired to look. Because yeah. you because you you're right. You as a human, you want to say, How bad was it? Could it have been me? Mm-hmm. What would I have done? Right. And those are all muscles and mm-hmm. brain muscles that mm-hmm. are important for survival. Mm-hmm. But it's also really important to get in the left lane and keep on driving. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we forget that, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, we we I think because fear is a part of our biology, we think that it's useful. It's kind of like an appendix or body hair. We have it. It's not necessary. We don't need it. Like, you know, so it's it is the same. Like fear is a part of our biology. It's real. It's natural, but it's not helpful. And Bill, some one thing you said that's really important is that this is important for leaders. It's important for anyone who's looking at a spreadsheet to have a a group of people in your organization or your entire organization that has been trained to act instead of react will help you win the prize. That's the other bottom line too. It's, uh, I I mean, I saw it. If you have a group of people, like you're losing market share, do you want people to go home and be fearful because they might lose their job? Or do you want people to go home and look at the information and say, where's the opportunity and innovate and respond. So it right. really does impact the bottom line. It's if, if you're being outcompeted in your industry, fear does not help you innovate. It just doesn't. It, inspiration is different from desperation. So this is one, the thing I do with my work is I have like the mathematics of emotion. So one thing I talk about is that, so let's say, Something does happen in an organization, not COVID-19, but some other minor catastrophe, like maybe you failed with a client or maybe you lost $500,000. Um, 
you can spend the next 42 minutes venting about that. You can spend the next 42 minutes yelling at your team, or you can spend the next 42 minutes strategizing. So in my work, it's not that I'm saying it's wrong or bad. You're just losing 42 minutes of work time. Right. And, and the one thing I would say, if I were getting deep into the boss whisperer mode, I would say, you don't get paid to vent about this. You get paid to do your job. And that that's, so there are a couple of things like we all get paid to succeed and do our work. It does not help us biologically to be fearful and reactionary. And it's not our, we don't get our best product, our work product when we're reacting instead of acting. So this, all of this stuff that we're talking about can sound like up in the air fluff. When CEOs and CMOs and that C-level or president thinks about, yeah, you're right. That's 47 minutes I'm spending yelling at my team or worrying about them. That's 47 minutes I could spend inspiring instead of inciting more fear. So yeah, that's I, the, yeah. I, I think it's really, it, it's so good to name like inspiration versus desperation. Yep. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes people don't, people don't even see those two in the mm-hmm. same court, but yeah. The, yeah, there's probably a very thin line that, that at times, right. Under, under stress, a very mm-hmm. thin line between them. And it reminds me a little bit yesterday, I listened to, um, you know, Salesforce has been hosting these uh, conversations, you know, on kind of mm-hmm. on a global scale with leaders. And they had uh, Brene Brown on. And she talked about very similar to kind of what you're saying is in these moments of crisis, um, what we see all of a sudden are the cracks in the fault lines, right? Yes. We see those immediately. We're like, oh my gosh, there's a crack in this or there's a fault line in that. And maybe we could argue that like everybody having to go home and work from home overnight surfaced mm-hmm. a lot of cracks and fault lines, right? But at the same time, we start working our quiet muscles of inspiration. Yes. And it's it's that aspect of what you're talking about. We could sit there and be like, oh, I'm in desperation. This is never going to work. Mm-hmm. I've got all these limitations. Mm-hmm. Or we say, what quiet muscles do I have that I haven't had a chance to flex for a while? Mm-hmm that yeah. are going to give me a source of inspiration and maybe yeah. others. Um, yes. and, and that to me is like the, the crossroads that, that I think a lot of organizations or leaders are at right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned, and I'd like to just hit on this a little bit. You had mentioned the, you know, the desperation and mm-hmm. it makes me think of, and you were saying, you know, in some examples where leaders might be yelling at people or, mm-hmm. and it, it brings up the, it brings up the, the bully. Um, in my mind. And I think about whether it was a teacher years ago or a boss um, or on the political stage, we don't need to name names there, but we're Mm -hmm. seeing plenty Mm -hmm. of examples of that. Um, How do people under all of this kind of stress (laughs) resist the, the, the desire to sometimes be authoritative or be a bully. And, and if people are listening and they're kind of encountering that in their day-to-day, what advice would you have for that? I, I would say it, it, we have to, first of all, kind of break down the difference between being an assertive leader, a work style, and emotionally damaging people. So there are times in times of crisis when someone does have to make the call. You know, mayors and and politicians, other politicians around the U.S. had to say, yes, things are closed. We're going to, you know, put police tape around all of the public park benches or whatever. 
that was they needed to exercise authority to keep everyone safe. That's different from yelling at people and saying things are closed. You know, so right. the, the authority is important and we need to embrace that power because it's in the org chart. Hiding from power can make power very dangerous. When you're in power and you hide the fact or are not aware of the fact that you have power, that's the very thing that can make you a bully. And when you don't embrace your authority when it's necessary, that can cause an organization to fail. The bullying part comes in when you, bullying is when you're intentionally targeting one or a number of people in the organization to cause them emotional distress. More, more than likely because this happened to you. We know that hurt people hurt people. Bullying is intentional use of some type of either hierarchical power or social power in an organization to cause other people damage. Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, sir, I worked with an organization and they had a sales team and, and there was a sales person that complained about being bullied. And I went back and forth with this team and they were like, well, we don't know if it's bullying. We don't know if it's this. And I was saying, well, this leader should change their style because it's going to impact business. And, you know, there's some people who thought like, oh, you know, this guy's just wish, uh, you know, kind of fluffy, fluffy, whatever, all of these soft skill stuff is not important. And I said, well, okay, let's, I do the math. I said, well, okay, this salesperson, we don't know if they're being bullied or not. It might be a misinterpretation of style. They may not know how to, how to manage up an assertive boss. What we do know is that he's spending 30 minutes a day in his car crying. So that's two and a half hours a week. He's not selling. Right. So, so we, we don't know if it's bullying. I can tell you from my experience that I think that it's bullying because some of the things they're saying and some of the profanity, that's not a part of the workplace culture here. But we don't know. We don't have to make that decision. But you're losing two and a half hours of sales time. So it would behoove the manager to change their style because otherwise you're losing lots of time that that person could be selling and making money. So, you know, um, the bullying is complicated because in the U.S. there's no laws um, right now protecting us against it. Um, so it's a very complicated issue. You do need, you know, people need help understanding the difference between work styles and bullying and a couple of things I say do, again, giving solutions is to use something like a predictive index that can show you someone's style. So I've used it with leaders on individual coaching and in organizations. So in a behavioral assessment from predictive index, for example, it will say this person is assertive when challenged. If you use something like that data, scientifically validated data, and you give those to any direct report that person ha has, that direct report knows that person's going to be aggressive when challenged. Right. They're not trying to bully me. That's just their style. We can have a conversation about that. My style is this other set of things from my behavioral profile. And then we can also see how these styles will interact. Um, and I'm going to, I'm, so I, I, one more thing I would say, I think it's the leader's responsibility to pivot for the team. Again, because the math of it is that they're the least common denominator. Each of your 42 team members can't change. I mean, they can, that's going to be difficult. It's easier for you, the one person to change right. for all 42. That's mm -hmm. just going to be more efficient. Um, so I think that there's some scientific and mathematical ways of approaching bullying, and it has nothing to do with necessarily making a moral judgment about someone being right or wrong. 
Um, because when I was a bully, that didn't help me. Just someone saying that was wrong, you're bad. Right. You know, I, I think it's one of the really powerful things you talked about, and it paints such a clear picture for me about that person who's sitting in their car crying, you know, emoting, <laughs> emoting yeah. for like yeah. hours at a time, you know, yeah. and it goes back to what we were saying before, which is, you know, trauma and stress and tension has to release somehow. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's really, you know, important to kind of understand what that looks like for different people. Mm-hmm. I remember back when I was, you know, in the military and I remember having a conversation when I came out at, at, you know, at work. Um, and at the time I worked for IBM and IBM is an amazingly supportive organization mm-hmm. and they've done a tremendous amount on, you know, human rights for many, many, mm-hmm. many decades. And yeah. I remember talking to uh, my boss at the time or one of my bosses or project managers mm-hmm. and they asked this question. They said, you know, I, you know, what, what, tell me what difference it, it, it would make because, you know, you're already a top performer and you're, you're doing great things with teams and everything. And I said to that person, what you, what you're marking as a hundred percent performance, I'm telling you, you're only getting 80%. Wow. Yeah. And I remember him it's, looking yes. at me and saying, hang on yes. a second. You're telling uh-huh. me I'm only getting 80% of you. And I said, mm-hmm. yes, because I've always had to reserve 20% Mm-hmm. For those moments of yes. worry or emotion or mm-hmm. somebody disagreeing with me or possibly, you know, mm-hmm. attacking me or whatever, you always had to reserve mm-hmm. that 20%, which goes back yeah. to the fight, flight or freeze, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. Yes. Um, and I'll never forget that moment where he stood up and he was like, can I high five you? Can I give you a hug? Because you're mm-hmm. now basically telling me that I basically I'm getting another 20% out of you starting tomorrow. And I said, you absolutely are. He was, I mean, he was ready to run like, you know, yeah. laps around the Pentagon. Like, yes. And, yes. and it's, and it reminds me the importance of the workplace and it's trust, you know, it's, it's building exactly. trust and allowing yeah. people to work in those quotients of trust. Um, exactly. Which is exactly, I mean, it's, it's the work we do and why we do the work we do. Right? Yeah. It, it, it's, the, it's like, do you want your team members to do, what they what their boss wants or do you want them to do what's best for the organization and if you have an uh, a bully boss what what a lot of those team members do is they will make decisions that will appease the boss and that is oftentimes different from what's best for the organization um uh, you know I, I i i man i can tell you i was a bully and i i was the director of teaching interns and i have a mentee to this day like this was 15 years ago i was nine years old, got a director's job for a summer program. And uh, I was directing these interns. I was a bully. And I, and so this kid was uh, one of my students. And then he was an intern for three years uh, for the summer program. And then he became, I'm his mentor. A few years ago, um, Bill, this kid moved to Germany. I had been coaching him and helping him make life decisions he didn't tell me he moved to Germany. He didn't tell me for, I think, two months. He had moved to Germany, met a partner, moved in, I think. And finally, I found out via social media. And then when we finally talked, I said, and this is 15 years later. I said, well, why didn't you tell me? He said, well, because I'm afraid of you. 15 years later, wow. that damage was still done. Yeah. So when we think of this salesperson, even if the bully's reformed, 
the emotional body bags we leave behind when we do that and the damage you have now a a a a a kicked dog who's afraid to make a wrong move you can't innovate in organizations you can't be on the cutting edge with people who are afraid of the edge of what you just can't so it's Again, I always want to bring it back to the bottom line. This bullying and being a great leader and having emotional intelligence and giving f- critical feedback and using um, you know, behavioral assessments, none of that is woo-woo up in the air. If you want to be on the cutting edge and innovate, you have to have risk takers. And if there's no trust, if people feel like they're going to get in trouble, they're not going to take risks. Right. Um, yeah, they, they just won't, you know? Um, and I think it's... You know, now more than ever, there's there's a need, there's a desire, there's a want yeah. to innovate. And yeah, yes. And every day we wake up and we're kind of in this new world. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to have to take risks. We're going to have yes. to try new things. And to know that you can do that without without backlash, without mm-hmm. being you know put down, mm-hmm. um, is really important. And I do think there are going to be innovations that come out of this um, that that otherwise we wouldn't have seen because, you know, people, there's going to be a whole set of creativity. There's going to be uh, a desire to, to try new things, Mm -hmm. but you're right. If, if people live in a place of fear, they're never going to surface those ideas. They're going to keep them to themselves. Um, Exactly. They're going to live in a bit of a, a a cocoon or a closet. mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I would hate for the world to, you know, miss that opportunity. Mm-hmm. to have that pass by when yeah. it could make a real difference in people's lives. Yeah. And I mean, and we all know the story of like Google's Gmail and AdSense, how they gave engineers, you can use 20% of your time at work to do whatever you want. And because they had the trust and those people had the leeway and jurisdiction to play around with Google's technology, we have Gmail and AdSense. So right. we see in real time how that works, you know, and I, I want to say, I, I'm going to go in the opposite direction and say, um, what we will find, things will change. One thing that everyone's asserting, for example, out of fear, is that what are we going to do with work from home? What are we going to do with work from home? Everyone's going to want to work from home. I bet we're finding now that a lot of people don't want to work from home. I, you know, I've talked to a number of people and they've realized, no, I don't want to sit in the same place where I eat and sleep. I don't want to be in that place for 14 hours a day. So people like the texture of going out and, and how that relates to what we're talking about in terms of leadership and soft skills is how do you, when we come back to work, for example, if you, if you haven't had these, this soft skills training, that leadership stuff, how do you manage that conversation when there is an employee who does actually does want to work from home, but you see from the data that that's not been working for them? Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Or how do you make the decisions about who this works best for and why? So there's a whole series. We now, before we move into this new normal, we now have the opportunity to take that sacred pause and say, hey, how do we manage the emotions around this, the communications about this um, to, to help people understand what the new normal is and why? How do we manage the communication about why we're asking people to come back to work or why, why we're deciding as an organization that we want to stay out of the office for another two or three weeks? So all of that requires, you know, this quote unquote soft skill stuff that can seem unimportant. And the way we do that 
will impact the levels of trust we have with our team members. And that does impact how they work and that impacts your bottom line. So it, it's all kind of full circle, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, yeah. I really appreciate you kind of walking through that because again, I, I think all of these things are very top of mind for people, but some mm-hmm. of them are not putting words to them. And some of them actually yeah. don't even have the opportunity like you and I right yeah. now are doing to talk <laughs> through it. Like it's really helpful yeah. to talk through exactly. it, um, yeah. which is why, uh-huh. you know, Yes, things will change. Things always change. I mean, look, uh-huh. I opened the news this morning and NASA made an offer to three different companies to get man back on the moon. You know, like, there we go. I was like, okay, here we go. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Blue Origin's going to land, mm-hmm. you know, something on the moon by 2024. Like, exactly. talk about change, you know? And, yeah. Um, and it all goes to the, the, the next and last question I have for you, our second mm-hmm. to last question. How do you stay healthy and change? How do you stay healthy and change? Well, it's always happening. Uh, When you understand that there is never a plateau in life where everything's just going to be a-okay and everything. It's almost like I, 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 I equate it to watching a really good movie. Some of most of the best movies are movies where there's tension throughout the plot. Yeah. So um, we, mistake, we mistake challenges in life for challenges forever. We, we're going to work 96,000 hours of our life, and it's going to have a lot of content. Don't mistake the content of this moment for forever. This is a part of the content of life. Um, and understanding that puts it into perspective. So... Um, in 96,000 hours, some things that you like will happen. A lot of things that you like will happen. Some things that you don't like will happen. It is not forever. Um, even this now, if, as we come hopefully to the other side of this, if people were to check in with themselves uh, on a scale of one to 10, h- how fearful were they in week one and how fearful are they now? It's less. So when whenever you're in those moments of change, understand that it's just the content of life. Things are always changing. The weather changes outside. You grow from a kid to an adult. Life is constant change. And don't be confused by the story that this has never happened before. And, you know, will things, you know, everything is changing. Things will never be the same again. That's, a, that's part of that is true. And part of that is and a, a, a lot of that is true. Part of that is reactions out of fear. Things are always changing. And, um, you know, and have trust that we're working together. What I see right now is we're working together better than ever as a global community to keep people safe. I mean, there's a COVID CEO pledge where CEOs are pledging to give up their salaries. We've never seen that before. Right. I mean, you know, and most of the commercials are talking about or pivoted towards being safe. Most mostly, people are not trying to sell us things. There's one company that I'm disappointed. I, I will not fashion company. I really, just mostly people are not trying to sell us things. They're trying to tell us how to be safe. And there's no hidden message of come buy from us later. It's so look at all the good news out there. There's a lot of good news. Yeah, I agree. And it's again, it's a it's a mindset thing. I, I think that mindset. I love that word. And, and there's a set of behaviors that I think you teach and I know I teach that help you get to the mindset. What I tell leaders is that 
you don't have to believe being this way is helpful. Adopt some of the behaviors. Like I would say, have a stricter media diet, discontinue saying negative things for two weeks, and then see. You don't have to believe it. You can just change your behaviors and then see if there's a change in your life. Right. Like the power of a gratitude journal. Right. Yes. Just start yes. writing, write three things down. I love that it was suggested the other day. Like exactly. Just write three small things that are like normal occurrences that uh-huh. you're grateful for. Um, exactly. And yeah. do it for a couple of weeks and go back and read it three weeks later. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a pretty powerful exercise to do because you're right. It's a behavioral change thing that we start to realize you can rewire just like you can rewrite your story. You can rewire your brain by doing some of these things. um, Exactly. Which is all pretty powerful. Um, Before we close, I would love for you to tell people where they can find out more about you and your organization. Uh Um, And when, when the the new next, I'm not calling it the new normal, I'm going to call it the new next happens and people want to reach out and, and, and find out how to possibly do some amazing work with you and, and your teams. Uh, where can they go? Where do they find out about that? Two places. One, of course, is LinkedIn. Um, my name on LinkedIn is James Guilford, J-A-M-E-S-G-U-I-L-F-O-R-D. Um, and you can go there, look for the CERT guy. I'll be on a stage doing something. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I am a LinkedIn-aholic. Um, you can also learn more about me and my organization and the people I work with. It's Coworks Lead. Coworks Lead, one word, dot com. And you can go there, download our, we have a lot of free sources, stuff that you can use with your teams immediately. And, um, you know, we offer some workshops that are now, uh, we're doing those via Zoom so we can do that stuff. And I, I just also love to chop it up with some leaders who just want some ideas about how to do this better um, because I'm always interested in um, helping people out and learning from what they do. So yeah, go to LinkedIn. James Guilford is my name there and go to www.coworkslead.com or email me at j at coworkslead.com. Yep. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I will say the, uh, looking at the, the website I saw earlier, the, you know, take your groups beyond the boardroom. Um, and I love how you guys spell board, B-O-R-E-D in quotes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and there's this wonderful picture of, you know, folks doing some stuff on mats and in rings and, you know, team, oh, yeah. teamwork and team building, I think yeah. is something that people are going to so, so have a yearning for they um, need, in, yeah. in, in the new next. And I'm really appreciative that you all do that work and that it's, you know, it's an experiential thing, right? Like the body has to learn new ways to go through this. So thank you so much, Jay, for the time, the perspective, the laughter, the insights. Um, I really appreciate it. So much fun. So much fun.